Hello and welcome to Human Nurture. I'm the host and practicing couples therapist, Jason Brand, and this season we bring you a deep dive into the how do you do that of couples therapy. While I do hope you learn from this and find it entertaining, that's what it's here for. It's not intended as clinical advice and or counseling. The idea of the season is simple. Follow along with me as I interview actual couples and get consultation from other couples therapists about the how-tos of helping couples' relationships. Beginning to wrap up our time with the first couple of the season, Bart and Susan, and what you're about to hear is a consultation interview with my level three PAC colleague, Debbie Campbell. I don't know if I've ever read a list of a person's background that better describes their clinical style and approach than Debbie's. She's a student and practitioner of sports psychology, positive psychology, couples counseling, psychodrama, and neuroscience. You'll hear it in her. She's like a performance athlete, personal trainer, PAC expert, and brain nerd with real warmth and compassion all in one package. I came to Debbie with a big question. How does a couple's therapist learn to use the patterns of arousal regulation and an understanding of developmental neuroscience to create a safer and more secure relationship? If that sounds like some confusing jargon and mumbo-jumbo, well, you're in the right place to make it all a whole lot more clear. One note, in listening back to the interview, we talk a great deal about pacing, how fast or slow should a therapist go in couples therapy with their couples. I think that what we're really talking about, but don't name quite as directly as we should have, is pressure. So we also focus on how does a couples therapist know how much pressure to apply to the couple to bring about change? The answer to this has a lot to do with arousal and neuroscience and attachment. So hold on to your hat. It's an action-packed episode that I hope you'll enjoy. So it's a great pleasure to welcome Debbie Campbell to the show. Debbie, how you doing? Great. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. And we're a little bit warmed up here because we've been talking and I'm going to do your whole intro ahead of time. So no, no need to worry about that. Let's just keep going. Okay. One thing that we've really been talking about that we're going to weave in here, how patient to be with your couples and how, and how much to kind of push ahead. And that's one reason that I really wanted to talk to you today. Let's just start with a little bit about kind of our difference in styles. You listened to the tapes. What stood out for you on the tapes in terms of patience? Um, well, I, I think you're a lot more patient than I am, Jason, because I tend to move at a, at a pretty fast clip. I like to let my clients run, um, but then once I have a feel, I like to move on it. And so, I mean, I had, I had to watch them at a faster speed. <laughs> <laughs> full disclosure, 2.0. I had to watch them at a faster speed. Once I had a sense of who they were and how they were, their nonverbals, because they give us a lot of nonverbals. And actually that's where moving slow is wonderful. Mm -hmm. um, and juicy is when we're tending to those nonverbal states and can they read each other and maybe, you know, ingraining some like deep work that you want to stay, but you know, yeah. every therapist has their own style and pace that they're moving at. So for mm -hmm. me, I, I tend to move back and forth a lot and even a little bit faster, probably. Yeah. And is that, did you learn to do that? Or is that something that just, you're kind of born that way? I think I've always been that way. Like stylistically, I'm, I'm probably ADD. And so I, you know, expect for things to move a little bit faster. And so just to pay attention to it for me. And so, I mean, I could handle it, but you know, I also got this feeling that there was something they were dancing around in their pace and in the mannerisms and their language, like their speech and the things that they mm -hmm. didn't say. And then, you know, Susan gives a ton of nonverbals, which mm -hmm. is hard to convey on a podcast. 
and, you know, Bart, not as much. They Mm. both do a lot of eye blinking. Bart does some gulping. Susan does a lot of like biting her lips, Mm. um, you know, flushing, you know, you Mm. can't fall in love with them with all their little micro expressions and nonverbals, but that's where going slow to me gets really interesting. I find it easier in those places. It's a bit more hypnotic when it's looking at the micro expressions. Can they mm-hmm. read? Wait, so say that, so help me with that. So looking mm-hmm. at the micro expressions in a faster clip, what is, what does that allow you to do? Um, well, you can see things if you run it at a faster clip that are harder to see when they're moving this slowly. So you can see like, oh, suddenly Bart's breathing really quickly. You know, Susan flushed. Now she's not flushed, you know, and also the pacing. Something that stood out to me for sure was the pacing because speaking freely, they speak actually at a totally different pace than when they're speaking delicately. And I wondered too mm-hmm. if how delicately they were speaking to each other also signaled threat to them because there is something about walking on eggshells that signals threat to your partner. Mm -hmm. So I couldn't help but wonder if even like the pacing of their speaking was part of the challenge. But if you speed up the tape, you can see the pacing when they're being, you know, honest and forthcoming about what's going on, they feel free to speak there and it's um, faster style of speech. And then dancing around things a little slower, you know, like uh-huh. a lot slower, actually the, all the little, you know, the breathing, especially is the big one. Like, Oh, something there has one of them turned up a little bit or they're relaxed. Their breathing is pretty chill. You can turn over what's going on sometimes in pace because it's arousing, but then you also have to modulate it to be fair to your clients that, you know, like as a therapist, we're the master regulator in the room. So we're turning up the heat and we're turning it down and do that in pacing. And so I love a hypnotic state, a good hypnotic state between clients, but Uh I also want to get stuff done. That's kind of my style. And so, you know, I have this urge in that first session to kind of like want to understand what's really happening in this session, because there's so much in what's not said, and there's so much in their nonverbals that make me concerned for them, uh, what's really happening here. Uh-huh. Okay. Well, let's, let's define a few terms here just so that we can kind of ground this with, within the way that we as therapists think about it. So when you say master regulator, mm-hmm. let's start there. What do you mean by master regulator? Kind of like a good parent, right? So, um, there's the relationship, which is our client. And then there's us, the therapist, and we have this relationship with their relationship. Okay. So it's our job to be able to calm the couple down or work them up, also calm them down personally or work them up personally. So we're in the realm of arousal regulation. And that's really about vitality, life force, calming each other down, working each other up. Dan Siegel, you know, coined the term window of tolerance, right? And so in that window of tolerance, you know, we're emotionally available and intellectually available to uh, address things that are happening in front of us. And outside of that window, if you're above it or below it, right, you could be in a catatonic depression or dissociated if you're below or like Mm -hmm. fight, flight, freeze, frenzy, if you're above it, that's outside the window. So our job is to keep them in the window. Uh uh, Just like it's also their job to learn how to do that. And so one of the ways we can do that was with pace. So being, I'm just thinking about this from the parent perspective, the way you described it. So if there was a task of going to bed as the parent, you would kind of, you, you calm the kid down. If there's a task of like, okay, we got to get out of the house. Now you want to see the kid move at a faster pace. Right. And, and, right. You, and you, and over time with, with our kids, we want to teach them how to regulate themselves, how to be able to get themselves to sleep, how to be able to arouse themselves in the morning and to be able to get to school and do all that stuff. Let's take that and apply it to the couple in terms of what are we trying to do with the couple 
because they're not our kid. We're trying to help them secure function. So what, what are we doing when we uh, play around with arousal with our couples? You know, helping reparent our couple in certain ways, things that mm. they learn growing up because, you know, most people leave their childhood with some areas or pockets where they need to develop further. They're still emotionally younger. They had trauma there. Um, you know, no one leaves childhood unscathed mm-hmm. and depending on, you know, like arousal regulation is learned. So it's learned from your parents. It's internalized from your parents. So, you know, like we are all born with an instinct that we could, you know, avert gaze, right. Which innate and inborn in us. But, um, beyond that, it's learned, you know, externally through our parents and, you know, they, they teach us, they recognize things in us and they teach us how to manage those things, mm-hmm. uh, how to identify feelings and then manage them. And they're our good guide, right? They're, they externally regulate us versus the auto-regulation um, that I described previously that's just biological and reflexive. You know, once that's internalized, then we can self-regulate, which is pro-social and pro-self. Where, you know, as an adult, we feel capable of managing our feelings. We can uh, become objective, reflexive, mm-hmm. reflective about um, the things that we're looking at. And then ultimately at a coupleship, at the point where you're in a coupleship, that's interactive regulation. You hope that they have interactive regulation where they can calm each other down, work each other up because they're experts on each other. They have a skill mm. set. But inter- interactive regulation is largely built on, you know, a parent playing with their child. Um, Mm. and so if you didn't get that growing up, that could be an area of challenge. And it also usually manifests on the playground growing up. Um, you know, the child will struggle socially because they uh, don't know how to interact. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So at that point where they're in our office, we're, we're, we're helping them use their arousal regulation, like a good parent building awareness, and then also teaching skills, like making sure we, you know, we're exposing whatever's accurate for them and then building skills. Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Okay, cool. I feel like we can really crystallize some of this. So there's different strategies for regulation. One is called autoregulation. And that's where I kind of go into my own head and I soothe myself, mm-hmm. right? Correct. Now, how's that different from, from self-regulation? What's the, what's, why is, or, or are they the same thing? Um, self-regulation is I can calm myself down uh, and be pro-social at the same time right? I don't have to leave the room. I don't have to rely on you to calm me down, you know, and then interactive is I can calm myself and you down at the same time. Mm -hmm. Pretty sophisticated Mm -hmm. and complicated. There's a lot of mastery Uh there. Okay. Okay. And just so, and just, and then just to loop this in external regulation is when the parent regulates the kid. Yeah. They, they need their parents help to calm themselves down. And, you know, if that's done with consistency, then it kind of crystallizes, they internalize it inside and they have it to have and to hold, it becomes self-regulation. Okay. They no longer need the parent to do it. They can do it on their own. uh Uh-huh. Okay. So I think if I, if I were listening to this, I would still be confused about, so then what is auto-regulation? What, what is, what's so different about auto-regulation from external regulation? So autoregulation is something that's biological and reflexive. It's most easily explained if you, you know, look at it in an infant, you know, if an infant becomes uncomfortable, they'll avert their gaze, right? If the Uh parent chases their eyes around, they're going to start curling their body to try to Uh avoid the gaze. So it's, it's a way of trying to take your arousal down by doing things that are biologically reflexive, going into your own mind, thinking about things on your own as you're a little bit older, relying on yourself, maybe overly Mm -hmm. self-reliant versus external, which is where you resource someone else 
And you need that person to help calm yourself down. Um, mm -hmm. As a child, that's developmentally appropriate. As an adult, not as much. And you can actually see this with babies if you if you stare a baby in the eye for too long, which I don't recommend that you do. That eventually they begin to kind of kind of look away and and begin to use strategies for taking care of themselves because what's happening in the environment is too overwhelming. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Okay, and that comes online pretty early, right? Is that's it? It's a reflex. It's like early and young. It's there. It's written into our genetics. It's mm -hmm. it's how it's supposed to be uh, that we have an innate instinct towards that. And then if if you have a caregiver that isn't resourceful to you, then you will learn to over rely on that. And that's what we see in the island attachment style. Usually, is an mm. over reliance on auto regulation. How does this apply to the attachment styles to wave island and anchor? Right. So islands over rely on auto regulation because there's, they usually come from performance oriented families that, and, or are emotionally neglectful. Um, so these parents often look perfect. Everything looks good, but internally, they're not really having a lot of guidance on how to manage their feelings, identifying their feelings and um, how to metabolize them quickly and move on. They're not getting as much life guidance usually. So we see that in uh, the island attachment style. Mm -hmm. uh, the wave uh, has inconsistent parents who are not consistently available for them. Mm -hmm. So sometimes the parent is around and available to be a good guide and sometimes not. And um, you know that child uh, becomes uh, worries that they're needy because they don't understand why their parent uh, disappears at these times. Uh, doesn't want to admit that they need help oftentimes, but at the same time, they don't learn to calm themselves down. They just get increasingly emotionally aroused and they become very reliant on having someone else to calm them down because they don't feel they can do that themselves. So they get reliant on external regulation. Yeah. I, I need you in order to make me feel better. Totally. hundred percent. The anchor has parents that are emotionally available, consistent, and, you know, they don't need the child to perform or manage their own emotions. So they're, they can show up hundred percent for the kid and they seem to understand their role as a parent to be a good guide, to help the kid recognize their feelings and manage them uh, with consistency. And the kid doesn't feel that they have to choose to meeting their parents' needs over meeting their own needs. Mm -hmm. And consequently, they feel like they can grow. They feel safe and they can grow up into whoever they want, that people are friendly and nice and they can ask questions and, you know, people are generally good and they should show mm -hmm. up for who they are. That's and can go out and explore in the world and yep. come back to a safe and secure landing place where they get fueled up by a parent Yep. enough and then you know kind of feel good this is you know especially as a kid becomes mobile in toddler phase and then begins to go out into the world and and has a sense in the world of you know what i can handle my environment i know how to handle people and i also know how to kind of calm myself down and that's that's yes. where the anchor comes in and then pact is built on this idea that couples can help each other to become a secure functioning team. Can we put that into words and kind of articulate yeah, that? Yeah, so people pick each other based on familiarity. So what they know from their childhoods, they pick someone that's going to trigger all the places that uh, they're going to get activated basically because it's familiar. And then they're going to make cognitive mistakes that they're dealing with their parents as opposed to dealing with the person that's in front of them. It's assumptive. The brain takes the shortcut because it's efficient and it doesn't want to have to use novel space for the relationship. Basically, it wants to take that novel space and use it towards the world. And once I understand who you are, I automate you. And then if we're not conscious about co-creating a relationship that we both want to live in, uh, we're going to treat each other
other, the way we treat each other in our family of origin and interpret each other in that same, very same way. So we're mm-hmm. biased. And then, and what we're, what we're trying to help couples to do in secure functioning is what? Uh, it would be, you know, grow yourself up in the ways that you, you couldn't do or didn't in childhood because uh, your parents may not have been equipped. That's, mm-hmm. that's what we're doing. So we're going to expose those places that are still raw and young and then work to grow them up. Uh, so that you guys can function securely, securely in the sense that you have the interactive regulation skills, a structure behind what you're doing, that there's some organization to the relationship, things that you probably didn't see done in childhood because it wasn't done in your family. You know, relationships are very mysterious if you grow up in a family that doesn't talk about how to do them or doesn't do them well. And they're not mysterious if you're from a family that does them very well. So secure functioning is really about a couple's ability to be grown up um, emotionally, to have a concept of who you are as a person and a concept of who your partner is, to be an expert on the person you're with, to take care of them in public and private, to uh, know how to work them up or calm them down, and to have principles that you guys have built together about what equates to a good life and what roles you carry with each other to keep each other safe because you're in each other's care. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, great. You have a gift for being able to move quickly, but also keep a lot in mind. Mm -hmm. And I want to sort of apply this to Bart and Susan. How would I move them forward would be one question that I would really want to get to with you is like, okay, I worry that these guys are going to hide out or not be fully disclosing to me in the session like we saw over the two sessions. Mm -hmm. And what am I going to do, Debbie, to help me to kind of move them forward and think about this both in terms of them and just couples therapy in general. Why do we keep couples therapy moving? What do we do to move it forward? So if you'll allow me, I want to move back to move forward. <laughs> okay, <laughs> let's do it. So, so I look at Bart and Susan and I think they're both islands, both the island attachment style, and they've given us a lot of data uh, to that end. But I also think that Susan has advanced and maybe is the less islandy of the two. She's gone to therapy of her own. She may be more developmentally, emotionally advanced, and she operates a little bit, maybe more like a wave, but only because she's the less islandy of the two of them. So, mm-hmm. you know, when I think about Bart and Susan as a case, they're a lovely, cute couple. You know, I, I see two people who developmentally probably didn't have a lot of supervision and didn't have a lot of advising or emotional regulation from their family of origin. And so my hunch about where we, where we would need to go is to expose the things that they don't know how to do. So it's proven in the room because we don't want to mm-hmm. treat them like an infant. We want to really see what they're capable of doing. And then when mm-hmm. we find the pockets of what they don't know how to do, then we're going to teach them how to do it because I don't think they got instruction on that growing up. That's my hunch with them. Mm-hmm. And so, and I, and I think you have evidence that this probably will work because, you know, like there's that beautiful segment where you talk with Bart about appreciation in the first uh, meeting with them and mm-hmm. he bites on that and moves on it really quickly. They're mm-hmm. fast learners. Okay. Let me, let me ask you some questions here. It piqued a lot of curiosity in me. Okay. So I've been operating under the assumption that Susan is a wave or that she has more wavish characteristics Mm -hmm. because she keeps saying, show me more. I need to know more. I'm afraid you're not showing up enough for me, which mirrors back to what we were talking about in the attachment part about an inconsistency. I had it and then it went away. And so then I get really worried that it's never going to come back. So I have to sort of cling to it. 
so for me, what I hear her saying is, you know, under the cloak of darkness, um, you know, at night is up all night, stressed and worried about this and, you know, like not resourcing him. It doesn't seem like she's passive aggressive in any format. You know, she's seems more scared than angry about him not doing this. Uh, and that's in the nonverbals, you know, and the flushing and in the arousal regulation and in, in her mouth. And I hope I didn't mishear it, but I believe she said something like she's been thinking about this for two years um, mm-hmm. and she's kept it to herself. And that just doesn't strike me as wave like either. Now, you know, if mm. you have a healthy relationship with a therapist and you do that developmental growth work, you can learn to start functioning more securely. And, you know, technically wave is an advancement um, from Island in terms of development. And so, you know, she's moving towards secure. Mm-hmm. So when you say the two years thing, you're meaning the second interview she talks about or Bart's anger and about how she sort of waited to bring it to the to the surface. Is that's what you're referencing yeah, there? That's what I'm referencing. Exactly. Okay. But what do you mean that the wave is more advanced than the island developmentally? Okay. So what I mean by that is that what the island had was consistently unavailable resource. Mm-hmm. So consistent for the wave, it's inconsistent availability, sometimes resourceful, sometimes not. So they will internalize some things like some ability, maybe to self-soothe some sort of principles about how to be in a relationship or what the roles are in a relationship, but it's Mm -hmm. inconsistent. And so, you know, like when you move towards secure, there's consistency, predictability, it's principled. It, you can rely on it. It's, you know, mindsight and, you know, Dan Siegel's mindsight in full form. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. I, okay. So I see where you're going with this, which is that you're seeing Susan as also growing up in an environment of neglect mm-hmm. and that over time she has done a lot of work to move into more of this, to have more of a consistent sense inside of herself mm-hmm. of, uh, of a sense of security of safety and that that's what we're seeing, but that when at the end of the day, when the lights go out, that we've got two islands here. That's what I think. That's what it looks and feels like to me, especially in how avoidant they were in the first session of, you know, Mm -hmm. hitting the, hitting the problems in the relationship head on and how avoidantly they're both managing the problem, not addressing it, dismissing it. This is going on Mm -hmm. a long time to be dismissed. If they're, if she's a wave, that's what I think. And so, cause there, there is a dismissive sense until it's like, you know, she says, you know, in February, it was in my face. I couldn't deny Mm -hmm. it anymore. And I just see that generally happen more with islands talking about it. They're not dealing with it. Not that it couldn't happen with an island and wave, but it's different. The dynamic is different. It's much less avoidant denial, withdrawing, dealing with it on your own. Uh, Waves often, you know, will throw little tests or little nuggets. They get angry and, you know, they can uh, have outbursts and, you know, unpleasant, really unpleasant arguments about that. Uh, They seem kind of in it together uh, in that first session about being cool with not talking about it with you, mm. whatever is really going on, you know, waves are just itching to get that out there in my experience. Um, mm-hmm. And they don't even realize that maybe they're throwing their partner under the bus and um, not partnering with their person. They're not holding that person in their mind. And mm-hmm. literally where we focus our attention helps build the synapses and the architecture in our brain. And so it's more of like a brain functioning thing. So that's, mm. that's my hunch. And so, you know, like that's part of why I think, you know, I would want to take therapy in the direction of exposing what they don't know, which is 
what she eventually says in the second session, which is that mm-hmm. she doesn't basically know how to let him back in. This has basically gone on so long. You know, now she's struggling with deciding whether she wants to be in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it reminds me of something that Dan Siegel talks about in his book, which is like the the infant when it doesn't, you know, get its needs met initially will protest right? Mm-hmm. Um, it'll, it'll cry, it'll scream, it'll try to get the parent's attention. Uh, then it'll move to self-soothing, like sucking its thumb. But in this case, it's avoidant um, and auto-regulation, dealing with this on your own. It's not mm-hmm. like you know, she's taking it to her friends and family. And then eventually despair, which is what I think we see her. And now she's in despair. And, you know, she said, I don't, I don't know how I'm going to misquote her, but you basically, I don't know how to get back in. And that's what I would Mm -hmm. be looking to do in the session, because I think they're both islands is to get them to admit the things that they don't know by doing interpretation or by exposing it. And Mm -hmm. then moving more towards maybe some psychoeducation with them, because I don't think that these are people who witness repair in their family Mm -hmm. of origin growing up. So we're asking them to do something that they really don't have any template on how to do successfully. Here's where I struggled because I like where you're heading. I kept getting caught in this thing where I felt like I was the therapist in the room making Bart cough up information that I was enlisted in certain ways by Susan to kind of get Bart to begin to stay open or come forward. And, and that felt to me like, then it starts to kind of become performative on Bart's side. And then I feel like I'm also taking away Susan's agency because I want them to be doing this together. So help me through that hurdle first in terms of in the session. First of all, does that make sense about where? Yeah. Yeah. And and I think that she basically enlisted you to do her work. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, She tasked you with doing the work versus getting her to do the work, which is like part of her learning. And so, you know, I would have thrown a lot more down the middle um, Mm -hmm. because they're in each other's care. You know, I wanted to test uh, if they accurately read each other's faces and nonverbals. Like, does Bart know that he can be low signal? Because he can be low signal, which is Mm. um, probably disconcerting to whoever the audience is that they don't know what he's thinking and feeling. Um, Mm -hmm. And maybe he's pushed too far and it's too late, which is a very islandy trait where if, you know, you, if something goes on for too long and they get overstimulated and they really melt down, they'll attack, they'll lash out. And so, Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. you know, like I, I, let me, let me take that low signal thing though. Let me take the low. So, so I see the low, I see that Bart is low signaling, meaning that he's not showing a lot on his face, Mm -hmm. um, not showing a lot through his through his verbals, you know, if you listen to the interview, it's quite, you know, at times it's very quiet. And I, so when you say going down the middle, what I would say is what, in order to kind of do that in a way that, that doesn't make Bart look bad and doesn't enlist me in kind of taking up Bart's low signal. How do you do that down the middle? Right. I think you could do it a couple different ways. It doesn't seem like either of you really want to talk about the details of what happened in this argument. I wonder why that is. Uh, both of you are dancing around the the, the subject that we're in. Uh, I wonder why, mm-hmm. uh, you know, what's happening. You know, the other option would be to do a lot of cross reading because she has a lot of signal on her face. Like what's happening for her right now? What do you think is going on? What's happening for him right now? What do you think is going on? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, does, does he know that he has low signal? Uh, why didn't he learn to respond to her signal? Like there are a lot of questions that show up in there. 
neither of them seem particularly affectionate and loving. Why is it that they're not taking up for the other person's perspective? Um, you know, it just, it draws a lot of questions. Like I had a half page of notes of questions that I would have wanted to ask them hmm. just on mm -hmm. that first session. Cause I would have kind of followed that gingerbread crumb trail of the nonverbals to try mm -hmm. to expose what was really going on these down the middles and nonverbals to try and expose what's really up. Mm -hmm. And there were, the opening scene was really cute. Um, in the sense that Bart did something resourceful to help the tape and mm -hmm. wasn't particularly affectionate. Like, Oh, thanks, honey. She just kind of was like, yeah. Hmm. Which I thought was interesting. Um, like, is that how their interactions are when they help each other that they're, they don't appreciate each other? Like, is that the status of the relationship? Like, what does that mean? You know, I don't uh -huh. want to read, but it struck me as the opener. Yeah. Okay. And, and I think one thing, so we're talking about arousal regulation here. One thing about going down the middle for me in the way that you're describing it is that I worry that I'm going to make them feel ashamed mm -hmm. that, you know, saying something like, why don't you guys do this? That they go, Oh my God, well, we're just a terrible couple. You know, we, we're, we're just terrible people. So I think that's one reason why I often will shy away from a comment like that. Not to say that it's wrong, but, but I just curious how you think about that. Um, in my experience, when you put reality in the room, Mm -hmm. uh, there's relief in that it relieves the tension between them that they're struggling to put into words like it very rarely goes the direction you're going and if it did I would be like uh, where did you guys learn to go there hmm. that you, you know you'd put the whole your whole personhood out there uh, you know this is a cognitive error you guys are making uh -huh. um, we're talking about behavior that's you know being in a relationship is about behavioral contracts you know, uh, feelings that you guys are conjuring between each other, your personhood isn't at stake here. And then maybe uh -huh. go into childhood from there, if they made that mistake, like, do you know where he learned that? Do you know where she learned that? Uh, you know, like, because I'm, I want to get to work quickly, like, um, you know, identifying places where they're making cognitive errors uh, and they're having misunderstandings, misattunements, things like that. It often exposes uh -huh. things. And frankly, like if you own reality in the room, more often than not goes so well, people leave saying, thank you. This is the thing I couldn't make sense of. It makes so much sense to me now. Like the fog is gone. If they, if they move into shame, then you're going to address it. You're going to regulate them. You're going to use their background to help them understand it. Uh huh. And, and the reason, and, and the reason why you go down the middle with the reality in the room is that you're not painting any one person as the bad person here. You're painting this as a, as something within the couple that they need to look at in order to move towards secure functioning. Right. Exactly. Um, you know, they're in each other's care. The relationship is struggling. This isn't happening in isolation. They're both participating in it. Mm -hmm. you know, like, mm -hmm. um, you know, when Bart starts dealing with the anger thing, then she has room to go, oh, I actually don't approach this as well as I could, you know, like mm. I have other things going on. Right. But it's very easy to see Bart's anger thing as a con, you know, a little piece of content that you want to latch into and be like, oh, uh, let's pay attention to that. When, um, really we're looking for the dynamic issues. He may have an anger issue, uh, but, but why, why isn't she laying down boundaries? Why doesn't she know how to regulate him? Why doesn't she feel entitled to more and you know demand that? There are things it, you know it causes questions as to how how this has gone on for so long. Why didn't they seek help sooner? Mm -hmm. um, it sounds intolerable for both of them. Um, mm -hmm. You know uh, the communication isn't effective, and then they take a long time to get to therapy. 
one thing that you're saying that that I don't think that I really had in my mind is that so there's there's Bart waiting a long time to disclose his financial information, mm-hmm. but there's also Susan waiting a long time to disclose that within the relationship Bart's anger is this big issue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that those are two that, that there's something about both of those being there that's important. Right. Well, they're, they're like kind, they're like kind, they're both islands. This is a like kind management, um, uh-huh. you know, uh, that falls into the same bucket of Island. You know, one is dismissive and avoidant. The other one is avoidant. And so, you know, like one way of looking at this is that depending on the feel you get in the room with the couple is, and, and with them both being islands, maybe you could do this as an interpretation. It would be more successful, but um, that they've betrayed each other um, in certain ways. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's kind of what's teeing up. At least that's how it looks to me, you know, like he withheld a detail that um, might've changed everything about, you know, whether she wanted to be in it or merge finances or get married or whatever. Um, he withheld a detail that changed everything, which is going to induce a certain format of PTSD on her, which is what you're hearing her complain about in terms of symptomatology. And how, oh, slow down on that. How do you, how do you mean that that's PTSD symptoms? It's just, she's, you know, rolling there at night and staying up all night thinking about these things, right? Uh, It could be flashbacks. It could be not trusting him, right? She says that Mm -hmm. many times in the first session. I don't trust you. It's the gaslighting. It's the gaslighting kind of thing where it's like, I have to go back and tell myself what history actually was in order to make sense of it now. Right. And it, you know, it doesn't seem like he understands what a big deal that is, which is more evidence that, you know, like he's of the Island ilk, right? Because you know, he, he believes that it's okay to keep that kind of secret. Like that's not something that he's obligated to share with her, which, you know, isn't his fault. It's where he's from, but um, it's going to be a problem now because, you know, she's probably going to feel betrayed by this detail, which she does. And, you know, then, you know, if they accept that as a form of, of betrayal, then, you know, we have a protocol for that in terms of rolling back into safety, just like for her, she held that she was angry having a problem with his anger for two years, it's kind of betrayal to him. Like people wonder like, why, why didn't you tell me you had a problem with that until it was Mm. too late? Like now she's saying things like, I'm not sure if I want to do this anymore. Right. Like I'm, and I think that's a byproduct of not knowing how to get back in, but we can talk about that, but that most people would be offended by holding something like that for that kind of duration. If they're supposed to have safety in the relationship and be each other's keeper that we tell each other everything and she's not either. And so, Mm. you know, Mm. like there's this problem with them keeping secrets and keeping things to themselves and auto-regulating if they brought it to the midline, uh, then they could do something about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's funny. I mean, it's it opens up a world to me as you're describing this, but I have tr- I do have trouble seeing how keeping the anger because if you ask the partner why would you hide the anger, they would say, well, because it was scary and I was afraid of it happening, right? Mm-hmm. I was. I mean, I this was for my own safety and well being that I yeah. wasn't doing this. Yeah. Then then why stick in this? Why didn't you get out? Like you have the right to be with someone who treats you with respect. Get out. Hmm. Like it's, Ooh, it's, it's just, but that's just, I mean, I, and again, this is, I guess this is sort of my, where I feel like my delicate sensibilities get sort of, get sort of ruffled here, but ooh, that seems so harsh. 
Um, but I think it's what they don't know, right? We're back in the realm of like, they come from families that can act like criminals emotionally and, um, they just have to take it and stick around versus having the healthy self-activation or awareness that they deserve to be treated differently. And they have the right to that and that they're good inside. And that, um, if someone's doing that kind of thing, like there is a right move and the right move is to say, Hey, if we can't talk about this kind of thing, um, or it becomes a safety issue, then for my own well-being. I, I'm going to have to step out of this. I'm not saying it won't work this through with you, but if you're not willing to look at it, it doesn't work for me. Like you're making mm -hmm. a choice. Mm. Um, your choice is that you're moving into this aggressive anger. And then I, when you, you make that choice and you take it out on me, I also have a choice and the choice is, do I want to stick around and work on it with you or not? Mm -hmm. um, you know, or, or do we take it to someone else and work on it together? I mean, there are choices being made here, mm -hmm. but no one's doing anything. It's, it's like a, um, there's an assumption that the relationship will carry on despite things that are harmful to it. Mm -hmm. it's, it's so funny the way that it just feels so simple now that you say it. Okay, so let's let's roll this back a little bit too. And then how does that relate to arousal regulation and developmental neurobiology? So there's something about I go, I go into myself, auto-regulate mm -hmm. at the time when I should be coming forward. Mm -hmm. And as you said, self-activating, which is, you know, pushing myself to, to confront something that's there. Is, is that right? Right. That's, that's exactly right. And, and in doing that, um, they miss each other, right? Because they're managing everything on their own instead of letting the relationship bear load, mm -hmm. right? They're not doing anything together. They're doing it all separately. So like if this were in a sandbox and in play, it would be like parallel play, but they're not really dealing with it together. Mm -hmm. um, they're not really playing together with these things. And, and so it kind of drills down into principles, like what kind of relationship do they want to be in? And I, I don't know that they've talked about that. Like it's not in the tapes. I don't know if they've talked about that, but um, it's also part of why I think they come from an like Island ilk because they're not talking about it. It seems um, mm -hmm. there's no reference to agreements. You know uh, if, if anything, it just feels very dismissive and this automatic assumption that they're going to be together uh, regardless of what happens. Um, mm -hmm. and, and just, you, you're very good at sort of visualizing brain, you know, how this, what this looks like in the brain. Sure. And I'm sure you've thought about this for, for self-activation in islands and waves. How do you, how do you kind of visualize this and what, what's the language that you use to talk about this from a, a neurobiology perspective? So I, I might, since I think they're both islands say, do you guys have a hard time keeping the other person front of mind? in the face of something that feels like old behavior, mm. right? Because literally when you focus on something, you are changing the synapses and architecture of your brain right there in doing that. So, you know, you guys come from families that are, are selfish and self-protective. Uh, no one looked out for you. You learned that you had to look out for yourselves. Um, but the challenge in that is now you're married and so you're committed in theory to looking out for another person, but neither of you know how to do this. You know, it looks like often you guys take each other personally, like the other, there's no boundary between me and you. you the other person doesn't have the right to their own feeling, expression, whatever, or you get reactive when they express that instead of just allowing them uh, to express themselves and being able to reflect, understand who they are, reflect on who they are and how you want to respond, how you want to behave, who you want to be in the relationship. Dan Siegel talks about byproduct of reflection and it's mm. openness, um, observation and objectivity. Mm. And so oftentimes I'll have clients like this, go find my insight and read it. Even if it's just the first three sections, the rest of the book is great, but you know, it kind of helps them 
build awareness around something that they never witnessed their family do. And they never learned to do because no one did it for themselves. So, I mean, they it, literally their brain does not have that spot maybe, or doesn't have it when they're triggered because mm-hmm. that's the other thing. You're outside of your window of tolerance. You're going to see people behave in ways that are very singular, selfish, and self-protective because that's what the brain's designed to do is keep us alive. And that could be overdeveloped if you came from a family that was threatening um, or neglectful. And so this is a brain functioning issue. I mean, I think that's, um, it has to be said, this is a brain functioning issue. It's not their fault, but now it has to be dealt with. You, you ha- you're married and if you want this to work, you're going to have to work on focusing um, on the other person you're with and their experience as being equally valid as your own. Uh-huh. And we want to work towards a win-win solution that's good for both of you, that both of you leave emphatically happy. Um, right. That's understood, whether that's um, with a solution. Uh, but what happens when we're in our trauma and it's triggered because we pick someone who will trigger it is that we, we lose the uh, mindset part of our brain that allows us to see our partner. We push off from shore and we feel like we're drowning and we do what we need to do to survive, but it's terrible for the relationship. It's not relational. Mm-hmm. It's not pro relationship. Right. And I, and, and I think this is a perfect place to, to, link it back to what you said about see what they can do and then teach. And I thought we would focus in on this side, this thing you said, which I think is a good way to get into it, which is, this is a behavioral contract. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I imagine that for a couple, that would be one of these moments where you go, where they go, what do you mean? You know, when I, when I go into this, you know, if I go into a shame place with my partner we, we were talking specifically, you know, about making them feel bad. You said, well, this is a behavioral contract thing. Where did you get the idea that you need to, this needs to be an, uh, an indictment of your entire character, right? Mm-hmm. And right. so let, let's take that example, behavioral contract, and talk about see what they can do and then teach and then apply it to Bart and Susan. I want to make sure I'm understanding the question. Okay, sorry. <laughs> like, I, 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 at this point, Debbie, I feel like I can throw anything at you and you're just going to run with it. So, so I, I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm, just, I'm, I'm going like, with varsity to. level questions here. I want to, I'm like, I want to run with it. So are you, are you asking like, how would I run with them if that were in the room? Like, is that a simple explanation of it? Or can you repeat? Sure, sure. So the, so you see them go into a shame place when you make mm-hmm. it down the middle comment. Okay. Yeah. And um, which is like, you know, why can't you guys do this basically for each yeah. other? Um, why can't you take care of each other right now? Mm-hmm. Um, this is, and you would say this nice thing that you said about, well, you know, this is a behavioral contract. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let's, let's just start with that. What are you talking about when you say that? You know, a relationship is supposed to be based on shared principles, shared value system that the couple co-creates together based on how they want the relationship to feel. So it's a sequence of understanding the person you're with because they're self-disclosing and making that a priority and doing the same thing yourself um, as equals that you're, you know, weighing the other person's opinions, needs, wants as equals to your own and looking for middle ground. And so if it came out that this is what happened, that neither of them were in families that were attuned this way, they weren't founded on principles. Mm-hmm. I probably would reflect something about it's amazing. The relationship isn't in greater chaos. Hmm. It's amazing that this relationship isn't in much greater chaos. If you guys didn't do this activity, it's not your fault that you didn't know how to do it, but it's something we're probably going to have to get busy doing now. If you guys want it to be different. Mm-hmm. Doing what? That, that's, I guess that's, that's where I want to start is doing, what are you talking about? When Building you doing shared it? principles um, mm-hmm. of governance is, is what I'm talking about, about 
what's the purpose of the relationship? Like if they had to write a mission statement for a business um, and their business was their relationship, what would it be? What are the kinds of things that they do for each other that no one else can do? You know, very Stanism, you know, do they protect each other in public and in private? Are they experts in each other? Do they tell each other everything? Uh, Do they know how to calm each other down and work each other up? Do they view it that they're in each other's care? You know, when can they go off and auto-regulate? You know, what kinds of things matter to the other person? These kinds of Uh things, they have agreements. Like if one of them is socially anxious, how do they manage that together? Uh Um, Uh You know, if one of them is social and the other one's socially anxious, how do they work together to manage those situations? Because obviously... Uh, that could be an impasse where one person never wants to go out and the other person always wants to go out uh-huh. um, and they're building okay. these contracts. But so, okay. So let's take that to arousal regulation. So if you're sitting with them, you watch either one or both of them go into a shame place, a place mm-hmm. of feeling inadequate was the word that they were using. And you're, and basically you're saying, do you have a contract within your relationship about how you take care of each other? Mm-hmm in this situation, because something just happened to the two of you and you might just check it out with them. Does he look like he's ashamed? Yep. Y- yes, he does. And and so what, what does that mean to have a contract around something like that? So as you're saying it like that, what I think I would add is that I would I would actually want them to kind of move out of that shame. And probably how I would do it is I would say, who did this to her? Who did this to him? Where mm. did your person learn? to be that they should be ashamed right here. Like where else has this happened in their life? I'm going to want to bring their history live and then having to focus on the other person, it will get them out of the shame that they're in. Mm -hmm. So there's, you know, this series of tensing and releasing. So if they were both in shame, I'd say who shamed him, who shamed her, where did that show up? Uh, Mm -hmm. You know, why do they, why do they go right here? And um, you know, if not, I'm going to make that person uh, disclose, you know, I'm going to check for accuracy and make that person disclose whatever's there. Um, you know, then maybe I'm going to throw something like you guys are similar in this way. It's interesting that it doesn't seem like you guys have a structure for how you guys take care of each other in this spot, Mm -hmm. um, and prevent each other from going here. And I already know part of the reason they land so far apart is they don't attend to each other's nonverbals. Like I've already seen that in the tape. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. So maybe you, maybe we're going to do some psycho ed. Like, do you guys know how to do this? And, you know, maybe we're going to do some psycho ed on like, how do you have an emotionally attuned conversation, keeping your partner with you? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's another angle right there because it gets so far partially because they're both not tending to the other person's nonverbals. Bart's are harder to find and they're not not as much since he's been doing his own work, but you know, he, he can be pretty stone cold, uh, not expressive on his face. Uh, And we know he's a warm person because I've seen that Mm -hmm. too. And so it's Mm -hmm. probably disorienting to her when that shows up, Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, and unsettling to her. Let's go back to your idea of see what they can do and then teach. Let's take that piece of it. So what do you mean by see what they can do? You know, I'm going to go slowly, like you're going slowly and track what's going on. Maybe ask a question like, is it normal for you guys that you don't tend to each other's nonverbals? Mm-hmm. And then maybe they turn to me and say something like, what nonverbals? I'm like, oh, like the look on her face, the, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I, do you ask him what he's thinking? Because you can't tell, uh, you know, I don't know if he knows this, but he's low signal. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to wait for an opportunity to expose that. That's its own discrete piece of material, but uh, then they're probably going to say, no, no, I, people do mm. that. Like, that's what I hunch is going to happen. People do that. And it's like, yeah, that's part of how you keep each other safe and um, keep your partner with you in the conversation. You don't lose them. You know, and so maybe we're going to stop when we see the other person looking distressed or upset and 
uh, interact with them so that they're common with you. And so I'm going to start slowing them down uh, right there. And I'm going to be testing as to whether they can read each other's faces. Um, and somewhere in there, I'm definitely going to get one in about how Bart um, isn't very uh, expressive. His nonverbals mm -hmm. aren't very expressive. He's low signal. And does he know that about himself? Mm -hmm. Does she tell him, I don't know what you're thinking right now. You know, like your face hasn't moved and I don't know what you're thinking. And I'm mm -hmm. underwriting a story that it's not good, you know, and, you know, I'm going to, because it's on both sides. It's not just a problem that he, you know, is low signal, which is usually learned in childhoods so that your parents can't read you because they're not safe. But also like, does she let him know the reality is I cannot read your face right now because there's not a lot going on there. So I, I let me in. What's think, what are you thinking about? I, uh, what do you think about what I just said? I want to just start with the basic building blocks of can they carry a conversation together? And I would mm -hmm. move towards principles, like, because now they're starting to make agreements. We stop. Um, if we see our partner in distress or a look on our partner's face, we stop and tend to each other. Maybe that's something you guys could do. Uh, yeah, we could do, I think we could do that. Not a big fan of leading my clients, but if they're both islands, what I know is that they need a lot of education. There's a lot of psychoed once it's proven that they don't know how to do something. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I want to prove it. And an example of that was in the first interview about appreciation, where I really mm. led Bart to the idea that he should appreciate Susan for all the, for the way this, that she's drawing him out that, that, and, and I sort of, I led him to the water and I, and he, he took it in. He perked up. Mm -hmm. He perked up. He took it in. He started doing it. He was still doing it in the second session with them. That's part of why I think neither of them know what they're doing. They just don't know how to get out of the bag that they're in. And that's where, you know, psychoed comes in. Have they ever seen a successful repair? Mm -hmm. you know, who did you witness? Um, making successful repairs in your childhood. Um, you know, did anyone do that with you? You know, what, what is it that maybe you guys would like, you know, what would that look like for you? And if they really can't do it, I want to know that they can't do it. Then I might jump in and say, well, this is kind of what it looks like for most people. And you mm -hmm. guys are going to have to make it your own. What do you think? And usually they, there's a lot of relief, but there's also a lot of like, oh my gosh, that's so foreign. And sometimes there's a lot of emotion behind it because it's the thing that they've always wanted that they've mm -hmm. never gotten. And mm -hmm. so there's something really healing about their ability to give that to each other. And mm -hmm. so like if they're island island, this is a foggy place that they need help drawing clean lines because it's confusing in the way their childhood was confusing. So it's very easy for them to go back to the same brain states they were in in childhood. Okay, great. And I can see, I mean, one thing that I'm really appreciating here is that when you have a direction to be focused and quick in that direction. I mean, obviously you can change course as you're moving, yeah. but you pick a spot and you say, I'm going to go here and I'm going to get all this out into the open and you're going to do it in a pretty rapid pace. And I'm really getting a feel for that today. Oh, good. That's awesome. Cause yeah, that is how I look at it. Like I start kind of making a mental list of the things they do or don't do my hypotheses, my hunch. And then I start testing that and trying to expose it so that it goes to an arc of the session where they're leaving with something. It's clear what they're leaving with. Build a container, like, um, you know, and in my mind, the container would be both of you come from families that don't know what they're doing. So you guys actually don't know what you're doing. And there are some problems. 
with how this mm -hmm. is structured. And so you're holding each other accountable for things that, mm, you know, and expecting them to have them when you yourselves don't have them. And, you know, uh, you guys don't know how to do it and you're not asking for help, which is also very islandy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very nice. And so it starts with this big idea that you guys don't know how to do this. Mm -hmm. And then you kind of, you have them read each other. You go down the middle, you expose these little areas where that becomes true. Mm -hmm. You have them come to this place of, yeah, we kind of don't know how to do this. Mm -hmm. Right. And then I imagine that you kind of move in with, well, let's start building this together. Let's start yeah. doing this. Yeah. Let's talk about how we're going to do this together. There's mm -hmm. some enormous relief about having that in the room. Even sometimes there's enormous relief at, you know, something declarative, like uh, you guys suck at anger, at dealing with anger. <sighs> Both of them exhale. Mm, mm -hmm. Yeah, we're terrible at it. Do you guys actually know what you're doing here? Mm -mm. Mm -hmm. And, and so in my experience, I guess I've grown in confidence about just being very direct about what I see happening, um, usually through a down the middle or an interpretation. Uh -huh. um, or through some sort of exposure by crossing or bending metal, uh, because as soon as reality is in the room, it's a big relief to everyone. And then we can draw a really clean and clear path out. They understand what we're doing. We understand what we're doing. Um, and there's safety in having that kind of contract with them. You know, like I think about, I have a background in psychodrama. So I think about, you know, contracting with my client about the piece of work that we're really here to do. And it also, that also allows me to hold them accountable um, in places where they may not feel like doing the work that day, or they may be not being collaborative with me or their partner, because it gives me a lot of room to be like, wait a minute, I thought we agreed that this is what we were working on. And it, this is an activity we're going to do to get to that thing that you want. I, I, what's happening right here that you don't want to participate in that, you know, it's a mm -hmm. problem when they say they want something that they don't actually want. Um, or they don't want to do anything about, but that's a whole big subject on its mm -hmm. own. Mm -hmm. And just, just so that we're, we're, we're going with the idea that people might not know what things are, what's um, bending metal. So bending metal is when you uh, make a statement, you have someone make a statement. It's a declarative statement. So it's very self-activating. These are usually mm -hmm. hard for islands to do unless they're absolutely true uh, because otherwise they're waffle. Um, so it could be something like marry me or um, I'm done with this, uh, mm -hmm. give me a divorce. Um, it has to be simple, pithy, small statements that you know are declarative of a direction, mm -hmm. uh, which is something both of them have been hesitant to do right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, which is part of the reason it will be so self-activating and arousing. If they don't want to say it, they will turn to you and be like, well, that's not true. Sometimes you want to pick a paradoxical bending metal where it's like, tell him, marry me again. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, and you'll get a reaction depending on what you're using this declaration um, in service of. You can get a lot out into the room in these kinds of ways. Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. so. Yeah. And I, I mean, just going back to this question of pacing and how does a therapist know what pace to go at? For me, I think that being declared of moving fast, it would be hard for me to pivot. How do you how do you pivot and go fast at the same time? So I want to get to the facts fast. Mm -hmm. And but by doing that, sometimes you have to let them run. Mm -hmm. Like, so I want to get the problem into the room fast. That's kind of like and get agreement about what, what we're dealing with. Right. I um, see. You guys don't have agreements. Is it that you're lying to each other? Is it that you're having an affair? Like what's actually happening? Uh -huh. And then in the doing part, that's where I'm going to go slower. Mm -hmm. um, you know, because 
Uh, that's more hypnotic. That's in each other's eyes. That has to imprint uh, like it would with a mother and child and it's new. So it should go slowly. You know, mm-hmm. what's fast. I've heard Stan say this is um, things that have been rehearsed roads. You've been down a million times. So, you know, um, if they're able to move fast, that's either their truth or they're used to arguing that way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's almost like stuff that's, so when you say rehearse stuff that you kind of want to, you kind of want to clear the environment so that you can get to the stuff that's new that where they're going to be learning from each other, where they're not rehearsed, that's where the muscles get built. Right. Right. If, if, um, for example, like in that first interview with them, Mm -hmm. um, you know, they kept on talking about kind of like the structure of how they get lost in each other. Um, it wasn't fast, but it was faster than some of the other things that they were saying. Um, it made me feel like they'd talked about it before. It's not something that was new to them. Maybe even something that they're in agreement about because they've talked about the structure of how those things go down, um, based on the rate at which Mm. they spoke about them. And I wondered if they were bored of talking about this structure and not Mm. getting a result, for example, because like I started to feel kind of bored of Mm. them talking about the structure of the argument. It's like, what are they doing differently? How are they working together to do differently? Um, but I think that's further down the road, uh, because the stuff that we need to work on with them is so much more structural, primitive, young, affectively regulatory, keeping your partner with you, uh, mindset kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And then we can move into something that's more advanced like that. Okay. Okay. Do you have anything else for me? Anything else wanted to highlight or that you thought about in the, in the interview? Mm, I, I love your presence in a room. Mm, thank you. <laughs> you have a great presence and I totally admire that you can move slowly like that and it comes naturally to you. Um, and you can tell you have great rapport with your couples and that is like the ultimate of safety and good parenting. And so there's something very reparative, I think, just in that, that you could sit mm. with them quietly in it and move with them at their speed. I don't think going fast is always the right move, mm-hmm. you know, that you can tolerate their distress forceful to them Yeah, because not everyone moves fast. Mm-hmm. Can you pinpoint, I don't know if this is possible, but I'm curious, can you pinpoint a place where you, where you saw a pattern where you'd say, I think he would benefit from moving faster at that time? I, I wanted you to move faster in the very beginning where I mm. felt like they were dancing around the subject and there were tons of nonverbals and I would have been more, um, stylistically and, you know, you and I are very different stylistically. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. I would have chopped that up more using nonverbals, I think, and crossing. So, uh, what did you just see on her face right there? I would interrupt what he was saying or interrupt what she was saying. what did you see on his face right there? Did you see it? Uh, what uh-huh. was that? Uh, you know, is he right? And checking, like I would have done more chopping up because uh, it would have been harder for them to maintain uh, the facade of whatever they were protecting together. I mean, at least they were protecting it together, but it makes Mm -hmm. it hard for you to do your job. Uh, The fact that they both are good with that level of non-transparency and secrecy just also is part of why I think that they're a bit islandy, like both of them. Um, And so I would have wanted to chop up more there and cross a bit more there. Uh, What what does she mean by that? 
she just said, uh, your explosion, what does she mean by that? Oh, I, I called her names last night. Uh, I was screaming at the top of my lungs. And then I stormed out of the house and got my car and drove away for three hours. I doubt that's what it was, but like, it needs to be in the room. Reality needs to be in the room for us to address mm-hmm. it. That's a place where I would have moved slower to go faster. I would have jumped mm-hmm. in faster to slow things down to get the reality in the room. Because once reality is in the room, we know what we're dealing with and we can cut the cake. Uh-huh. We don't uh-huh. even know what kind of cake it is yet. And so, and that's hard to work with because we're in the blind. I'm not afraid of chasing the truth down, even if yeah. it makes them mad at me and I'll tell them. And that's one of the things I love about PACT. I'll tell them like, oh, without knowing what you guys actually do, like, it's very hard for me to help you. Uh-huh. You want help, but you don't want to give me the full lay of the land. It's really hard. Right. I don't know if we're dealing with a round cake, a square cake, uh, uh-huh, I love that frosting cake. cake, you know, like, uh-huh. you know, like I have no idea what we're dealing uh-huh. with. So, you know, the better you guys can describe it to me, the better I can help you. So Bart and Susan come in with a meltdown already have happened and mm-hmm. they already have an analysis of what that meltdown is. Mm-hmm. I have to say, as we're, you know, as I'm playing this in my mind now, I get convinced that I don't want that same meltdown to happen mm-hmm. in on my watch, mm-hmm. right? That I don't right. want Bart to feel inadequate and go away and, and, and Susan to feel like she's left wanting and not knowing if things are ever going to come back again in a, in a, you know, like, is she just going to be left alone again with these feelings? Mm-hmm. So I felt a sense of responsibility about not doing that. And I think that if I move fast, if I wasn't, you know, move fast and break things or whatever the, the startup phrase is, if I do that, then I'm just going to lead them right back to this place where they fell apart and they will have gotten nothing from therapy because, um, because I just made the same mess that they made when they were, when they were all by themselves. It's unlikely that you're going to make the same mess because you're there to slow uh-huh. things down and to affectively regulate them if they dysregulate. Like in theory, they should know how to regulate each other, but you could regulate them if you really had to. But if the problem's in the room, then great, we can deal with it live. Mm-hmm. You know, like mm-hmm. maybe we get them up and move them into a psychodrama. If they were further along in their work, the fact that they had an argument the night before is a perfect, perfect moment to get them both up and say, okay, let's let's really run this like a like it's the scene we're in a play where where do you start worrying where does this begin you know we'd run it like a drama I mean there that'd be an Mm -hmm. amazing intervention to bring it live into the room but I'm not afraid of people having live reactions in the room because that's part of how we learn to deal with them like how how can we not do how can we do our work if we don't have those live things going on in the room like how do we know whether he really will accept the apology when he's triggered if he's not triggered you know, I definitely don't want to re reenact someone's trauma, but at the same time, when it shows up, it's like, what a gift, because now we have it live. Um, and now I've seen it. Uh, you say you want her to approach yet. Uh, we were all in the same room when she approached you and you rejected her and said, don't come near me. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it, mm-hmm. you know, so we know that doesn't work actually, you know, like there's something about having reality in the room. That's really amazing. And so I maybe wouldn't want to get them to where they were the night before, but the night before was probably a really ill-attuned, misunderstanding, misattunement. It was a big miss, everything about it, uh, because we already know they don't stop and go slowly. Uh, You know, also if he starts to unravel, we're watching all the nonverbals. So we maybe will see it happen. Maybe we'll be able to say, did you know that before he loses his cookies, like he starts scratching his arm, you know, Mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. um, his neck flushed, he started scratching his arm. He looked away, he pursed his lips. Like maybe we get some nonverbals out of him 
that would tune her up to be able to recognize that in him when it was happening. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, Super interesting. Because I think that if I had your mindset going in, that I might've seen that whole opening play mm -hmm. as avoidance, you know, like, you know, they, they say, well, we want to talk about it today, but they're also saying we want to talk about it, but, but we don't want to do these particular things. And so they're coming in with conditions upon which we're allowed to kind of play. And I, I have to say, I bought into it. I mean, just seeing things from your vantage point. And I think that had I been in your mindset, I would have said, I would have been more looking at that as avoidance and saying, actually, we need to get in here more and focus on some of these things in order to understand what happened. Yeah, that's, that's what I wanted. I wanted mm -hmm. to understand they were giving a lot of nonverbals. They were giving catchphrases is what it felt like to me. Like, um, and then, you know, like I just got this sinking feeling with Susan, like she's beside herself. She's sick. And, you know, part of how I got that was I did all the things she was doing. I pursed my own lips. Mm. You know, I, I thought about what that would feel like, you know, and, and I was like, she is sick about something that she is not saying. Like that is mm. what conjured in me is like, she kept on Mm, like I'm not saying something. And I just wondered what was that thing that she wasn't saying? And um, they were happy to not talk about it, which is what I think they do at home, but that's not a great gig in therapy In therapy. Uh -huh. We're going to talk about it, but we're going to do it safely because we're going to do it differently. Right? That's a great yeah. intervention right there. I mean, you know, you do this at home and wh I'm watching this. We're in therapy now. Let's do something different. I mean, that's just, that's a great reframe right there. Yeah. Sometimes you could toss it down the middle and go, is this what happens at home? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, like, is this how this goes at home? This is how you guys talk about things at home. No, at home, we don't talk about it at all, actually. Oh, uh -huh. okay. So is this the first time you guys are talking about it? Uh, the first time in a while. I mean, to me, it felt like there was a lot of, like, we were a little like lopsided, but I thought you did a nice job of switching back and forth. Mm -hmm. um, I try when I was earlier and younger in PACT, I found it hard to go back and forth quickly. Mm -hmm. Um but if you understand what they both do in the relationship, or you have based on attachment, some assumption about what they're doing on mm -hmm. both sides, like he's secretive, she's probably secretive too. What is she secretive about? Um, that there's this, it's easier to go back and forth and kind of level between them. And that's part of how you regulate them. So they don't sink because you'll uh -huh. tend to do something tense and then you'll flip the direction to the other person and then yeah. you'll pull it back. And yeah. So, and that's a nice, that's a nice way to describe the master regulator because the parent mm -hmm. has a sense of where the kid is going. You know, I mean, it's like, right. Oh, I know that if you, you know, if I leave you, if I wake up at nine 30 and I should have been there at nine, mm -hmm. you're going to, you're going to go more in this direction. Mm -hmm. And so there's a way that you're predicting as the master regulator, where they're going to go. And some of that's based on kind of what you're seeing in arousal regulation patterns on their faces, mm -hmm. kind of neck flush, these kind of things. Right. And it's also based on your understanding of attachment theory and mm -hmm. where, where, how their attachments will play out um, within the room. Right. Exactly. I'm using attachment as a predictor of mm -hmm. what they are going to do and don't do and prove me wrong, you know, and then I want to see what they actually do. Uh, you know, like, and does that fit into how I'm thinking about them or not? Does it fall out the way I'm predicting or not? And then I change course. If not it's expository, it's kind of like a big light bulb where I'm like, Oh, actually she's a wave. Like mm -hmm. that's real. Um, which is what I'd be trying to suss with her. But like in the beginning, like, because they were so quiet, like, and you're so good at being patient, 
you kind of rolled with them in the quiet and I wanted the more action from them. And I felt like I could get that from their nonverbals and these catchphrases they were using and then cross, you know, like, what does he mean by that? Is she, is she right about that? If not tell him what's right, you know, like, and kind of start engaging in this back and forth flow or that it isn't one-sided. It happens all the time that couples come in where there's an agenda, you know, he has a drinking problem, he has an anger issue Mm -hmm. or whatever. And, and then, you know, it's so easy to get lost in that content when what's happening on the other side, because you're with Mr. Anger, you're with Mr. Alcohol, like mm-hmm. uh, what's, what's going on on your side of the street. Cause this doesn't happen in solo. You know, mm-hmm. It doesn't happen in isolation. And so, mm-hmm. you know, like what, what goes on on your side that isn't helping? Like, sure. That's a problem. No one's denying that, but uh, how do you participate it or, or not participate in it in ways that are meaningful? Excellent. Excellent. Okay. So let's begin to wrap up with you watched, you watched both interviews and the, the development of the couple. Let's, I mean, cause I think that there was real development between the, and mm-hmm. clearly they did a lot of work in between those, those two interviews. So let's, let's move this into sort of what is the, what's the trajectory here? Absolutely. They did, they did good work between when you saw them last and this time, because Bart mm-hmm. was so much more free and fluid and open and you could feel it. And he was more, self-expressive and he owned himself more. He was so much less shame-based. Like you can tell he's doing the work. He's even hopeful. I love that. Mm. And now that like he's addressing what's on his side, it's exposed what's on her side. Um, And I think, I think what's on her side is she doesn't know how to get out um, of Mm. this feeling of despair that she's in, Mm -hmm. uh, that there's been enough threat and damage and she's scared of him. Um, and of his anger specifically, enough damage has happened that she doesn't know how to get back in, which is part of why my thought was about maybe doing some form out of betrayal protocol, right? Mm-hmm. Where they uh, both own that they've betrayed each other in certain ways. Like maybe I'd run an interpretation of how they've betrayed each other and see if that got their buy-in um, mm-hmm. or if they protested. Um, and if they agreed, then we would talk about what it looks like to repair a betrayal. And that looks a lot like owning what's on your side of the street and demonstrating better self-awareness and why it would never happen again, that you would do this thing that betrayed your partner. It looks like going to your partner every day and asking them how they're doing with the betrayal. Mm -hmm. It looks like trying to be resourceful and helpful to them when they're under stress or PTSD from things that have happened. Um, And it's by building contracts about who you are, what you are uh, in the aftermath of this that keep you safe. And so maybe I would run, try to run something like that in terms of repair, you know, they could evaluate like, you know, how are we doing with the repair on this thing? You know, Bart may not even realize that he has the right to feel betrayed by the fact that she kept it to herself because he's more islandy and that's what his family does. And that's what he did. Uh, But he could use his betrayal about that to demonstrate a lot of remorse and regret for his own betrayal as well. Like it's, um, mm, I say, uh-huh. That's nice. Right. Like okay. there's room there. Uh, she may not have realized that she was betraying him by holding that in. And she might say, I mean, I think it's very valid. I was afraid of his anger. Um, I tried unsuccessfully many times, you know, I, it, it never worked. Um, but then the question becomes like, okay, so are you accepting that as the terms that like, it's, this is okay to happen in the relationship because you're operating as if it is mm-hmm. like, by mm-hmm. not, I, I know you didn't see this in your family of origin, but by not activating and saying something or doing something here, you're not signaling to him what a big problem this is. You're not keeping him safe by warning him. Listen, if this goes too far, 
uh, something inside me might break and I may never be able to come back based on what I've been through in my childhood. I worry about that. Uh, I don't think it's good for our relationship that there are certain things we can't talk about and, and also really not good for me based on things I went through in my family of origin, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and, and I, I know we're hitting places that are hard for you and I want to show up for you in those places too, like so that we deal with each other with sensitivity. Where I like where you're going with this is that there was this question, what to do about the void mm-hmm. in the session, you know, so, so, and, and I like the way you link that to uh, Dan Siegel and it started as protests, it moves to self-soothing and then it moves into despair. Mm-hmm. And then the question of, okay, so we're laying here side by side and there's just a void between us. And what I like about what you're saying is that the betrayal protocol, Mm -hmm. um, which you described, becomes a way to fill that void. And that ties into what you said about teaching, that this is a couple, because of the more islandish nature of both of them, that they're going to need more psychoed, more teaching within these spaces. Right, right. And I think too blank of a therapist would be a problem for a couple like this. If it's true that they had the neglect that it seems like they might have had in certain places that um, that would just reiterate the neglect. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it would take a good amount of warmth, which you have, um, and softness and, you know, gentle reminding that it's not their fault, but now it's their responsibility to take this matter into their own hands. They can grow themselves up. And the hope is that, you know, if they focus their attention there, it literally will rewire the brain. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. That's literally something that they can do just by focusing their attention on it. It's going to take some time. It's going to take some repetition. They're not always going to succeed at it mm-hmm. as long as they're feeling forward right? That they're learning from it. Cause these are also usually uh, failure adverse kind of clients. If they're islandy, they do not like to fail. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, that um, even the places that they're failing, if they learn from it, it's not a failure because Mm -hmm. they're growing, they're taking that and growing from it. And, you know, then they'll come in and say, we had a growth moment over the weekend, but we fixed it. You know, Uh it's, it's just a reframe to help them understand it differently. And it often works really well if you're dealing with an island island. Yeah. And are you a big homework person? Cause this, this seems like the kind of thing where you, I, you know, you would, you would assign people stuff. Do, do you do that? So I do give homework sometimes it's not my natural instinct to give homework, mm-hmm. but I do sometimes give homework, especially if it's um, in a place where I know, like, uh, for example, there's a clear task that they really need to work on. Like I want them to put that front and center. Like I want you to focus on having conversations with your partner's interests at my, in mind, for example, mm-hmm. Like not just advocating for your side of things, take up for their side of things too. work on that. I try not to make it too complicated, but it's also not uncommon for me because I read a lot to say, go get mindsight, read the first three chapters. Mm -hmm. I'm like, I want it. I want you guys through that by the time I see you next. Or the thing that I think would support your work outside of session is you guys trying to get through. We do Stan Tatkin's book. We do, um, even though some of it will be redundant, just reading it again outside of session and, you know, hearing it differently might help you integrate it differently. For a lot of my island couples, they read, we do, and it is like a foreign language. Um, you know, I even have one client who's like, if what he says in that book is real, <laughs> that's how foreign it is. <laughs> he thought it was science fiction. He's the most islandy island I know. I really enjoy him. Um, uh, that's and, great. But, you know, he's he like he's like, like if that hypothetical is true, like that uh-huh. this is what a relationship is supposed to be like, we do none of this. We've never done uh, any of this. So like, like it's a totally foreign language because, mm-hmm. you know, like that's the island culture, especially if it's really islandy is like, it looks good on the outside. You're bumping along with what you should be doing, whatever society mm-hmm. thinks you should be doing. But underneath it all, 
there's not a lot of emotional intimacy. There are no agreements. Uh, everything is unstructured and scary. It's assumptive. There's a lot of denial, uh, avoidance, withdrawal, auto-regulation. You know, you just drop it and move on and it never gets solved. And, you know, eventually if enough things get dropped and not resolved, which could be an interesting interpretation for her, you know, what will happen is, you know, you didn't keep yourself safe by not telling him uh, where you were struggling. You started to associate not just that behavior or that subject, but you started to associate him with threat. That's how the brain works. Oh, that's interesting. You started to associate him with threat, just like, you know, he may have started to associate her with threat, right? Like, and that's the way the brain works mm -hmm. if there's enough pileup and nothing mm -hmm. changes. If you know that about your brain, then right now, you know, you're working. You both want it to be different. You're committed to that. You're here every week. You're doing the outside stuff that I'm asking you to do. It's a work in progress. You're going to have to recognize you're in a new era when your brain wants to drag you backwards and go, you used to do this. Mm -hmm. It's true, but do you want it to be different? Let's fix it now. Let's do it differently yeah. now. That's the best fix. And that seems like a great encapsulation of so much of what you said today and a good place to leave it. I One thing I've really enjoyed about this interview is I feel like we found a nice pace as we went along. I feel like there were moments where it was like, well, you know, I'm sort of in my pace, you're sort of in your pace, but then I feel like we really, we really found a pace. And I think that that's, that's yeah. a nice wish for, you know, for all couples therapy is that you find a, a pace with your couples that pushes you a little bit, but also allows you some comfort. Yeah. I love your pace. It's totally regulating. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. And I love yours because I'm like, okay, can I, can I, can I stay up with this? It makes me work. And I, and I, um, working is good. Putting in work is good. It's great. Okay. Well, until next time, Debbie. Thanks for having me, Jason. This was awesome. So that wraps up the interview with Debbie Campbell. I hope you got as good a workout as I did in the how-to or how-do of couples therapy. So join me next episode for a wrap-up interview with my producer and colleague, Carolyn Sharp. We're going to flip the script, and she's going to interview me about what my experience in this first round of clinical interviews and consultation sessions was like. Stay tuned for that. And a big shout-out to Martha York, who sent me a very kind email. And I just love this, these last words that she wrote. I look to your podcast for guidance on how to embody more of the complexity of how we approach, hold, and trust a two-person system. Much gratitude for you and all your contributors and brave couples. So thanks so much for sending that. And yes, thank you to everybody who's listening, to Martin Susan, to Debbie Campbell, to my producer, Carolyn Sharp. See you next time.